We're still in a series at St. James uh, as we've talked about the three general rules of the United Methodist Church. And the three general rules are to uh, first, do no harm, second, do all the good you can, and third, to live, this is my translation of uh, John Wesley's Middle English, uh, to live the practices that uh, bring you closer to God. Because uh, without those practices, those disciplines, oftentimes you fall away from that sense of, of connection. So um, the first practice that we're going to be talking about this week is keeping awake. Keeping awake. And I'm not worried about whether you fall asleep in worship. If you do, that's perfectly fine. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being awake to the patterns of our lives. So before last Sunday... Uh, Wednesday of the week before, uh, I don't know, what, what day did we leave for annual conference, honey, do you remember? Wednesday, not this past Wednesday, but the week before. I don't know what the date was, and it doesn't really matter. All it was was 10 days ago we went to annual conference. Now, I am used to being, in my own mind, uh, important. You know, uh, it's always, uh, I think each one of us, and, and l let me just tell you, you all are important, and I am important. But I often, my ego likes to inflate my importance. Like the world revolves, you know, because I'm praying, and because the world is, all those things. Well, when you go to annual conference, you sit in a coliseum with 2,000 of your closest friends, who, uh, many of whom have no idea who you are. Now, I stand out because I'm always wearing, you know, the black St. James shirt and my black jeans. But even standing out is not standing out. So I kind of blended in. And it, it was a wonderful experience. And let me just tell you why it was a wonderful experience. Because it reminded me of my need to keep awake. Keep awake to thinking of myself more highly than I ought to. You know, Paul, you know, cautioned us against that. Be careful about being puffed up is the way he talked about it, you know, puffing up my feathers, you know, uh, peacocking it uh, wherever I'm going, whatever it is. It's too easy for us to fall into the same patterns, to live into the same patterns over and over and over again. And so I went to annual conference thinking, you know, that I matter, and I do, but thinking I matter more than I matter. I'm one of everyone else, and that's an important thing to remember. But I don't always remember it. So annual conference reminded me of that. And then I came back to St. James, a place where I know I matter because, after all, the church was named after me. So uh, see, see, I, no, it wasn't named after me. It was named before I was born. Uh, but the truth of the matter is a lot of people like to kid me about whether it's named for me or not. So I came back, and James was preaching. The, uh, not this James, and not that James, but this James. Uh, was preaching, yes, we have Jameses, we have Marks, we have, I, we have a lot. Um, and so uh, James was preaching. And not only was James preaching, but he did the centering moment. So I came with a thought about what I was going to do, centering, and so he did the centering moment. And then he did the preaching. And I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm really all that important at St. James anymore. You know, that's a, it was a waking, but I want to tell you, it's a gift. 
It's a gift uh, to, to be able to look at your patterns in life of thinking yourself, of, of your ego being inflated, of, of thinking of the importance of your life as perhaps greater than it is, forgetting that you're a part of the whole bigger picture of what God's doing in the universe. And when you forget that, you can't live in the flow of God's love. You can't. You can live in the flow of your own ego, but you cannot live in the flow of your own love unless you're awake to what's going on. Now, at the end of Jesus' life, he goes to the garden with his closest friends, his disciples. And he leaves some of them behind, and then he takes the three closest disciples, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and invites them to come with him further in before he goes further on by himself. And this is what he says to them. This is from Matthew chapter 26. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to the disciples, stay here while I go and pray over there. Then he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, which, by the way, are James and John. Uh, and he began to feel sad and anxious. Then he said to them, I'm very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep alert with me. Then he went a short distance farther and fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not what I want, but what you want. He came back to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Couldn't you stay alert one hour with me? Stay alert and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. The spirit is eager, but the flesh is weak. He goes off and prays again and then again. Each time he comes back, the disciples aren't awake. Now, first of all, I want you to notice something about what Jesus reveals about himself. You know, we always think he's the strong man. He's the dude who knows exactly what to say, exactly when to say it, and who to say it to. Jesus is overwhelmed by his own sense of sadness and perhaps even a tad twinge of fearfulness, knowing what's coming. Because it's not going to be easy. In fact, beyond not being easy, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. It's going to be ugly. And so he's aware of those things. He's aware of those things, and he is prepared to give them to God. But if you're not aware, if you're not awake enough to know what's going on inside yourself, you can't hand it over to God. If you think everything's honky-dory, if you convince yourself that everything's fine instead of it, it's not being fine, or if you convince yourself everything's bad when everything is fine, then you're not awake enough to be able to give your concerns to God. I woke up somewhere after the clergy session because, uh, you know, on, that, uh, on Thursday morning, they split us up. Pastors go in one room and laity go into another room. I don't know what the laity do because I haven't been one of those in a long time. So they probably have a little party and say, you know, those crack-headed, yeah, make fun of the clergy. What kind of crack-headed clergy do we have at our churches? What can we do to get rid of those guys and gals? You know, uh, probably the gals aren't crack-headed, it's only us guys, but I don't know, But because uh, I'm not in there. I don't get to hear it. I sit with the clergy where we make important decisions about whether or not people will be admitted to become clergy and whether or not we'll have to. This was a wonderful year because there were no conversations about people who had to be brought up on charges and 
have their uh, orders removed. It's always an exciting adventure when that's part of the clergy session, and that's one of the things we do. This year it was all, I want to say super positive. Uh, it, uh, I remember, annual conference felt good. It felt really, really good. But then we go into the large room with everybody else, and once again, that being awoke, awakened to who I am, I am one of God's precious children. There will never be another one like me, nor has there ever been in the 14.6 billion years of the universe. I'm the only one. And that's true for every one of you as well. Since the beginning, there's only one of you. You are a unique expression of God's goodness, just the way you are. God painted God's image on you. But you need to understand, it's not a generic image. You are not a cookie cutter of God. I, I think you know that. You know, I told you one of my important practices every morning, get up in the morning, look in the mirror. I am, not, you know, there is a God. I'm not him or her or it. I'm me. But in some way, I'm not other than God either because I'm a unique expression of God, just like every bit of grass out in the front yard is. Every, uh, every molecule, every quark, every galaxy, everything is unique expression of this God in the universe. But you have to remember the balance of that, which is one of the challenges, I think, for our lives, is staying awake to who you really are. Not all the descriptions people place on you, James, pastor of St. James, James, worship leader at St. James, James, you know, brilliant business leader. Whatever Jameses there are in the world, you know, we all have to be awake to those descriptors because they're not, they're just words. In the end, I am God's beloved. You are God's beloved. I am. When somebody, I, of course, someone recently made the mistake of one of those days when I was in that kind of philosophical mode, they asked me, so James, so who are you? I'm James. What do you do? I am. Now wait a second, hold on. What do you do? I am. Because I refuse to be described as, I do pastoring, I do fathering, I do husbanding, I do grass cutting, I do all of those things. Those are doings. They are not descriptors of who I am. They're descriptors of what I do. I'm United Methodist, I'm a pastor, I, you know, all those kinds of descriptors are simply descriptors. In the end, I am, and every single one of you are, are, I am. It will really end your cocktail conversation quickly if you're at a cocktail conversation. So, because that's the first question we ask. Have you ever thought about it? The first question you ask. So what do you do? Who are you? What do you do? I am. Okay, that's weird. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to go talk to somebody who at least knows the social conventions about how we ask things and how we answer them. But in the end, we're not about social conventions. We're about being the beloved of God. How are you going to be the beloved of God if you spend all of your life describing yourself as ugly, sinner, stupid, whack job, crackhead, any of those kinds of things? Those are not descriptors of who you are. They might be descriptors of some of the things you've done and about things that you have uh, felt bad about doing in your life. But 
those don't describe who you are. You are the image of God. I am the image of God. And the only way we're going to be aware and be in that flow of God's eternal love, any of us, is if we wake up. Jesus is aware of how he's feeling. And he's going to pray about it, to lay it before God. But he doesn't want to be by himself. So he says to his disciples, keep awake. This one says alert. Alert and awake are kind of the same thing. Don't fall into your old patterns. Don't take a nap now. This isn't an endurance test. But it is. Can you be awake enough to know what's going on inside of you? Now look, we develop patterns from the time we're, in early, uh, we're early children. Some of them matter and some of them don't. Some of them help us deal with the world in which we live. Um, I am okay. Do not, uh, I am, did not fall. Somehow my watch felt I thought I'd fall and fallen and uh, I couldn't get up and was ready to call 911. I hope that that didn't happen. If, the sh if they show up sometime soon, uh, apparently I was a little bit too demonstrative in the process. I will set down my Bible and I will try to stand still. It will probably last for 10 seconds or not. Um, being awake to who you are allows you in this moment not to fall into the same patterns you've always fallen in. When I was growing up, mom made my peanut butter sandwiches a certain way, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Because when she first made them for me, I came home one day and complained. This is what dad, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm confessing. Mom, if you're watching, yes, I know. Uh, I complained. I wasn't a really complainy child, but you know, when you make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and there's peanut butter on one side and there's jelly, it, and it's grape jelly and there's a, an abundance of grape jelly because mom knows I liked grape jelly. I cannot stand it anymore, but I loved grape jelly in those days. And so she'd put a lot on there. Well, one slice of bread would be purple and sticky and the other side would be all peanut butter and delicious. So how do you eat that? Well, the first time I took a few bites, got sticky hands and threw it away. So mom discovered a way to make peanut butter sandwiches. She puts peanut butter on one side. She puts peanut butter on the other side. She puts the jelly in the middle. It doesn't spread quite as smoothly because there's this lack of friction in the peanut butter. We don't have to go there. This is not a science lesson. But in any case, you spread it around and it doesn't. Yes, I went crackhead again. But uh, you put those things together and then they don't bleed through because there's peanut butter to protect it. Now, I know that that's the pattern. That's still the way I make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when I have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which, quite frankly, I haven't had in like 20 years. I'm going to have to get to it. But it's the pattern. Now, what about the patterns of the way you respond in your everyday life that do matter? When you're, you were a child and you were playing with some other kindergartner, let's say, and they walked up and they grabbed something from you and took it out of your hands, what did you do? You grabbed it back and took it. Or, as Joshua uh, appropriately indicated, you hit him and then took it back. Now, imagine as an adult that someone takes something away from you. Or, and, and it's not necessarily even a physical thing. 
Imagine that they take away your self-respect or dignity by saying something about you in front of other people. How do you respond? Ugly words? Probably you don't hit the other person. You understand battery, assault, jail, prison, all of those kinds of things. But you respond out of something. It's the same pattern you always followed. You learned it as a child, and you think that somebody says something ugly, you say something ugly back. In high school, I used to be able to really send back those quick zingers. Somebody said something ugly to me, I could say it back just like that. And if I couldn't get them with a good zinger, I could make them feel stupid because I was really smart and I had an unbelievably large vocabulary and I thought it was cool to make other people feel that way. Imagine your pastor, if you said something one Sunday morning, well, I sort of like that sermon, James, but in the middle, it got kind of squishy. I couldn't figure out what you were talking about and you kept using that word crackhead and I just lost you. I just lost you altogether. And I said to you, you know, you're an idiot. Why don't you try preaching? How would you feel if that's the way your pastor responded? Man, uh, that's not a church I'm going to hang out in anymore. That is not a church I'm going to hang out in anymore. Try it after worship. You will find I will not respond that way. <laughs> Let's hope. If it's really, really bad and you push enough of my buttons after a while, I might say something I shouldn't say. Because I'm human and I'm alive. But we learn to catch the pattern as it comes up. We learn to catch the pattern as it comes up, and then we don't have to act on it. We don't have to do the thing we've always done. Just because I used to immediately respond with ugly words because I wanted to be the boss, or if I wanted to end an argument, and instead of talking about what we were talking about and staying on topic, if I skip over topic and go for something like your throat and make you feel bad about yourself, so I have won the argument because I shut you up. That's not when it, first of all, nobody wins any argument. There is no winner. It's like a dance. How do you win a dance? You don't. You just dance. If you've ever danced before, you dance with somebody, and some people might say that you dance better than they do, or blah, blah, blah. Who cares what they say? How do they even know? Did they make up the rules for dancing? Yes, they probably did. Did you have a good time? Did you enjoy dancing with the partner you were dancing with? Did you have a good moment? Was there a sense of connection? Then you won the dance. You both won the dance. And everyone around you saw the joy, and they won the dance too, even if they weren't dancing. It's about being awake to the things that rise up in you. The moment when you feel someone has stepped on your, on your thing. Poor James had no idea that last, he got up and he, he said, James, I want you to have this Sunday, you have to do communion because that's your job. But I want you to have this Sunday off. But I thought that I got to do this entering moment and I didn't get to do this entering moment. He was giving me time off and I was inside of me, something was rising up. I could feel it. It was like, this is such a wonderful gift. James gave me a wonderful gift, the opportunity to see in myself my own fallacies, my own ego, my own puffed upness. 
We all have it. But if we're going to live into this flow of God's love, we have to be able to recognize when it comes up. Recognize it for what it is. And let it go. And let it go. That's really a part of what it means to have a contemplative life. To have a life related to God. To be in the flow of love. When someone gives you a gift and it's not the gift you expected, receive it as a gift anyway. And that gift might be an ugly word. Do you have to say the ugly word back? Or can you be strong enough in yourself to recognize this person must be having a bad day? Now, I will tell you every once in a while, it doesn't help you to recognize that they're having a bad day and then try to counsel them about their bad day. Back in the 1980s, I worked for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of the National Capital Area, which is now Care First. And I was in federal employee program benefits customer service. People called, I answered. Somebody called in really ticked off about the way we had processed the claim. Now, I didn't process the claim, it wasn't about me. So they said all sorts of words. Now, I'm allowed to do one thing when somebody says words that my mama wouldn't say. I am allowed to hang up the phone. But I didn't feel like it was a need for me to hang up the phone. Instead, I said, you know, sir, human beings don't talk to each other this way. <laughs> this is not how we, this is when I was in between being in ministry and being in ministry again. This is when I knew that I needed to be somewhere else. This is when my team leader walked around the corner who had happened to be you know, monitoring the phone call I was on and said, James, I need you to end this phone call quickly. <laughs> and so I said, so I want you to think about that. <laughs> the next time that you choose to yell at a faceless entity, perhaps, you know, you could choose to do so in a way that's appropriate. Goodbye. Thank you for calling Blue Cross and Blue Shield. <laughs> so my team leader proceeded to tell me that my job as a customer service representative to, was to let them say anything they wanted to, but if they said things my mama wouldn't say, I can hang up. But that's it. I can't tell them what it means to be human. So then I took a different gig where I get to tell you what it looks like to be human, and you can either decide to do something with it or not. I lay it down. What I understand that the Bible says to us about who we are. You want to be awake so you can live for Jesus every moment. But if you find yourself falling into addictive patterns with your life, you got to break those. But if you're not awake, you can't break them. You don't catch yourself. So how, what are some practices, James, that can help us keep awake? We do one every week at the beginning of worship. Breathe. Breathe. Someone says something to you and you feel like yourself, you feel something boiling up inside you, take a minute and just breathe. Now, if breathing doesn't work, still keep breathing because that's important. You know, otherwise there won't be a response at all as you collapse on the floor. Keep breathing anyway. Count. You can count until you feel what's going on start to fall down. Now some more spiritual practices include things like centering prayer. Maybe centering prayer is not for you and it's okay if it's not. Maybe you could take a walk, a meditative walk 
where you don't think about what's going on in the world because you see as you open yourself up, you see all the stuff that's floating, all the patterns that keep recurring in your life. And you can choose which one of those patterns you're going to follow or not. You don't have to be mean because someone was mean. You can be different. It takes courage to be awake. Because some of the stuff that rises up in us, everybody else has told us is ugly. Let me tell you one more thing that I have learned. You are not your thoughts or your feelings. They're not you. They're your thoughts and feelings. You can let them go. You can let them go. That doesn't mean you're an evil person because you had that thought, because you had that feeling. If you say it, might cross that line. If you act it out, might cross that line. But if you let it go, if you're aware of it, So learn to watch yourself. The more you watch yourself, the more you're aware. The more you're aware, the more you can live like Jesus would have you to. Jesus was aware of where he was as he was in the garden. He was aware of where he was inside. And he knew the only way to deal with it was to let it go as he prayed to God. Take this cup away from me. So pay attention. Keep awake. It's hard work. If anybody told you discipleship in Jesus was going to be some easy dance that you walked down the aisle, said yes, and then it was all going to be good, well, it's all going to be good, but it's all going to be challenging too. That's what keeping awake is about. So that you can love God more. You can be in the flow of God's love more. 